Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures and it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada Land. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada Land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. comes with a 20-year warranty. And a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. Nora Loretto, writer, activist, organizer, joining me again from Quebec City. Hello. Hey. Nora, today we're going to talk about the current, past, and future. <laughs> Dare I say an unkind word about Anna Maria Tremonti. It's permitted, I think, in this safe space. Conspiracy revealed. We're going to talk about the inside scoop on Jody Wilson-Raybould and Jane Philpott's fiendish plot to disempower and marginalize themselves. All will be revealed. Finally, we will talk about the real reason why conservatives don't trust reporters. It involves unions, Nora. Load your pistol. <laughs> it's loaded. This episode of Canada Land Shortcuts is brought to you by Sean Archer, Joe Kunzler, Aaron Bentley, Shannon Patterson, Paul Goodrick, Terry Jackson, Allison Wallace, and Tim Bousquet. I'm Tim Bousquet, editor and publisher of the Halifax Examiner, and I support Canada Land because Jesse Brown understands the future of local news is small, adversarial online publications like the Halifax Examiner and the Cape Breton Spectator. 
and that the sooner we see the demise of legacy giants like Post Media, Saltwire, and Brunswick News, the sooner we'll see a flourishing of those small adversarial online publications. And as mentioned, this episode, Nora, is brought to everybody by the Liquid Art Festival. Are you a beer drinker? I am. Are you familiar with the products of Collective Arts? No, uh, craft breweries in Ontario don't tend to get much play in Quebec. Ah, right. Well, you've got some wonderful breweries there, too. This is like one of my favorite Ontario breweries. I'm a big fan of choosing beer based on the artwork of the can, and Collective Arts has beautiful artwork on their cans, and that's what got me into these beers. Before they were a sponsor, I was a big fan of their porter. They have this delicious Stranger Than Fiction porter, it's called. They have a coriander and Himalayan salt beer. They do interesting beers. They have a delicious sour called Jam Up the Mash. Anyhow, I like their beers, so I'm glad to be working with them on this art festival. Their whole thing is that they support the arts, and they have this liquid art festival coming up in Hamilton. Over 50 brewers, artists, and musicians from around the world gathering in June 14th and 15th. Live music on two stages from Real Estate, Birds of Bellwoods, The Blue Stones, lots of other acts. Tickets are all in. Once you get a ticket, you do not need to buy beer tokens. Okay, everybody, if you want in on this, head to liquidartbrewfest.com and use the code CANADALAND. You'll get 15% off of those all-in tickets for this festival in Hamilton on June 14th or 15th. And there are six free pairs of tickets available if you retweet one of our tweets about it. Check out a CANADALAND tweet about the Liquid Art Festival. Retweet it for your chance to win. So Nora, Anna Maria Tremonti has announced she is leaving The Current after 17 seasons. She is going to be working on some CBC podcasts. Have you heard about this? Yes, I did see the news. This is one of the moments that uh, that tests a media critic like myself. <laughs> this is a moment where I feel like my integrity is put to the test. I mean, everybody is lining up to say kind words to Anna Maria Tremonti, like as well they should. Everybody respects Anna Maria Tremonti. She is a fine journalist. She has worked a very difficult job for 17 years, like Daily Show. Daily Show is a grind, and she has brought important stories to us. She has asked tough questions. She's been paid well, but like, I don't think she's getting rich. She has never had a scandal, no paid speeches to the oil industry. Like, Anna Maria Tremonti is my kind of public broadcaster. I have had a chance to work with her a little bit. I've contributed to The Current. She was kind and courteous, very professional. So now is the time, Nora, for all right-thinking and reasonable people in Canada to just say thank you for everything that she has done for us. It certainly seems like that, eh? There's been... <laughs> I haven't seen any um, any negative or critical kind of reactions to this. And I guess when someone leaves a position of this profile, it, you know, it's kind of like... Um, I don't want to say that she's going to die, but it's kind of like someone's passed away and you remember all the good times and... And The Current is something that people, I think, really, they really feel connected to it because if you listen to it every single morning, you feel like you know Anna Maria, you feel like you, they're part of your family. Like, that's the power, obviously, of, of radio and that's the power of sound. And so, yeah, I think congratulations to her. 17 years seems like an impossibly long time to do something like that. And I have been extremely frustrated with her interviews for many years. And so I look forward to a new host. <laughs> I, wa I want to <laughs> hear why. I, I mean... I keep wondering if anyone is going to say the thing, which is sort of the opposite thing of what you just said. Like, like the show is really solid. It's respectable, but it was never great. No. It was always, the current was kind of flat for me, you know? And it never really, that never changed. Like, 
I actually feel like specifically to the points you made, like radio can be that intimate. It can be part of the family. It can connect you. And that's what never happened as a listener for me with that show. Like I never felt like I really got to know her. Mm -hmm. I never felt like she was connected to the material in a way where I got to know how she felt about, I mean, I, that's part of her professionalism. And I think she was always a reporter and I never felt that she kind of got to that host level where, you know, like it just, uh, it just was lacking something and it, it sort of stayed there for me. You didn't like her interviews. Why were you frustrated with her interviews? Well, I shouldn't say I don't like her interviews. I think that there's a couple of different things going on at the current that make for a show to sound a bit more frenetic than it should. And so this is a show that covers a lot of different issues and it's kind of under the broad umbrella of current affairs. But the difference between a documentary that'll air on the current, the quality of the documentaries that, that air on the current, which I think are very good, and Anna Maria talking to someone about a new book, about a subject that's really weird or, or really interesting. Uh, you can tell that she's very excited and curious about what someone might be talking about with a new book. But the second it comes down to political coverage or to trying to name the issues that we are up against in Canada, it really consistently fell flat for me. And and like I've been listening to The Current probably as long as it's been on, if I really think hard about it. I guess I'm that old. Yeah. It's been unable to really offer Canadians a political look at their own world. And so whether that is at the federal level, whether that is provincially or, or even municipally, it always falls back on the same problems that I find that CBC has, which is guests who are either PR flax or they're uh, interested parties in some way that makes the interview not that interesting or uh, they'll rarely get a politician. But when the politician's on, it's only under such specific conditions that you're not going to get that politician to say something on air that they didn't mean to say. And so it really dilutes the quality of the programming because you'll have a great segment followed by, I mean, the segment this morning that featured Susan Delacourt and Chris Hall, like I wanted to punch myself in the face. Like I listened to 20 minutes for people who are apparently professionals talking about the political climate in Ottawa and, and Jody Wilson-Raybould and, and Jane Philpott. And they said literally nothing at all. Interesting at all. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it was like, why am I listening to this? This is a waste of my time. <laughs> I mean, I think a lot of people are going to hear your critique and say, oh, you know, Nora is a progressive. She's on the left and she just wants the, the host to be more on the left. But like, I agree with you without feeling like it had to take a political perspective or position. Like, I feel like the show played it so down the middle in the CBC way that like there is a way to make the issues matter and to tell me the stakes of them and to not just deliver like, OK, this is how we do things. We have a strategist. We have a pulse. You know, I think that Carol Off is an example of somebody who can kind of really connect you with issues without getting a sense that you know where she stands on them. And I, I think, you know, CBC, obviously, like they can't have crusading hosts, but I think that often becomes an excuse to kind of just like this is the news because it's the news. This is the story of the day because everyone uh, you know has agreed that this is the front page story. And just trust us on this. We're not going to explain to you why it's important, you know, and, and now here's one voice on one side and one voice on the other. And and I, I don't know. I had a, I, I would often tune out. Yeah, no, it's, it's exactly that because, you know, you can actually really hear it in the difference in how they cover American politics to Canadian politics. Because in, when they cover American politics, you can feel like you kind of kind of feel like Anna Marie Triante is like sitting back and relaxing and is like, this is an interesting political theater that really doesn't have direct bearing on our audience. And so somehow we get even more in-depth coverage about what's going on in the United States than in Canada. 
They're into it. I've noticed that too. They're like energized because like, okay, this is a good story. Let's talk about this good story. And they're not afraid that they're going to step on a toe. So they actually dig in, not that they're like on one side or the other, but they have the journalist instincts for like, why is this interesting? And then it's like, you're eating your vegetables. I'm just doing my job when I give you the Canadian stuff. No, exactly. And I mean, like, yeah, sure. I'm a progressive person, um, but I wouldn't listen to the CBC if I was expecting to hear my politics read back to me. You know, like there's nothing on the CBC that comes close to reflecting my personal political point of view. Right. What do you make of this uh, move that the announcement is she's moving on to CBC podcasts? I thought that was both interesting and a bit weird because there's like two projects she says she's working on, one of which she was rhapsodizing about how much she loved S-Town and she wants to do a reported show and there's some mysterious project. That's kind of what I'm really curious to see her do because I think she's a fine reporter. Mm. But she also is going to have some kind of like marquee interview show where she like really does intimate interviews. And I'm like, that is exactly what I don't want. That's what I never got from The Current. Like, you know, there's this thing that CBC has been doing, like moving Ian Hannah Mansing onto their Uncover podcast after the first season was like a really interesting compelling investigative story then you got this like very bland anchor voice reading a script and moving these marquee personalities now that their podcasts are getting a big audience and and podcasting is the wave of the future they're kind of like well this is obviously a platform for our celebrities Mm -hmm. and you know I, i i think about that from the perspective of the young producers who made cbc podcasts what it is and i also just don't know if it's gonna work like like it's a different medium and the kind of intimacy that podcasts kind of promise it's like That's not what I associate with the AMT brand. No, like I think that there's two possibilities for what she might be imagining. And I say this based on like the kinds of interviews that you can hear her getting really into on The Current. And so those are those one-on-ones with people who've got an incredible story or some sort of thing that has happened to them. Those are the interviews where you can hear her interest in humanity. And, and that, that's also where the politics kind of sets aside that, you know, it might be fit into a broader political perspective, but that she really wants to hear one on one what that experience is for an individual. And so, for example, on the episode they did on the abortion restrictions in the United States, when she spoke to this woman who had to carry a baby to term and, and then wait effectively for the baby to die. You can hear that she was very into that moment with that woman to have that conversation. So I imagine that that will be a big part of it. And then the second thing is you can also hear like whenever she goes on on her vacations, it sounds like she's taking along her microphone and, and doing road trips. Like every summer, I feel like there's like another trip to the deep south where Anna Maria Tremonti is like at a bluegrass festival talking to people about Trump. Right. And again, you can hear that there's joy and that she really enjoys doing this. And so is this, you know, oh, it's 17 years. I have to leave. I'm not ready to retire. The CBC knows that she's a star and she can do pretty much anything. Or is this a signal uh, from CBC podcasts of the direction that they want to go? I'm not sure. I mean, as a podcaster myself, I don't really see the public broadcaster doing one-on-one interviews in this way in a podcasting format that will add to the podcasting world. I mean, we really need good public radio, (laughs) but who knows? Like maybe this was just the way that they found her to be able to retire and will retire from the show and then continue to work. Yeah, I I can't tell what's going on because sometimes like CBC is just bad with like saying like, okay, it's done. Like like this person's leaving or this show's been canceled. It's always like, no, 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 no. We look forward like Shad will be doing all sorts of stuff with us in the future. No one's getting fired here. No one's moving on. No one's quitting. And usually it does mean that it's just they're just slowly letting it like die in the most kind of excruciating and dishonest way. Or is this in earnest? And, you know, actually the noises that Anna Maria Tremonti has been making about podcasts feel genuine to me. 
like as much as I've kind of like defined her, I mean, I'm going on 17 years of the show here, but maybe she'll surprise, you know, like I, it's, it's the reported show. That's the one I'm curious about. I'm just like, I'm not the interview show. I can't imagine like she does this thing. One last thing. She does this thing. And I know why you do it as an interviewer, right? Like especially a CBC interviewer will get coaching to you want to connect with your interview subject, but you don't want to agree with them. So when they're when you're when you're saying something and you're trying to get them to kind of like, you know, edge them along, don't say, yeah. In response to something they say, because then later, you know, the conservatives will be able to say, you agreed with that mm-hmm. statement, you know. So she has this like, and it feels very coached, regardless of the interviewer circumstance, there's this Anna Maria Tremonti sound to kind of just like interject in between and remind you that she's there. Hmm. Oh, yeah. Hmm. <laughs> yeah. Like you could have a soundboard. You could have an AMT soundboard. Hmm. Now I have the next question. Hmm. Hmm. So, you know, maybe we'll get like, I'd love it if the interview show was just like a rowdy, combative, foul-mouthed Anna Maria Tamonti. That's the podcast I'm in for. Nora, Jody Wilson-Raybould, and Jane Philpott have announced they will be running as independents. I believe that we now have clarity. We now know the truth. And voices have been vindicated. Voices like Sheila Copps and Heather Malick, who have been telling us for months, don't believe this moral righteousness, this principled stand. They are conniving. They are trying to bring down Justin Trudeau. They have self-interest at heart, selfish political ambitions. And now those schemes have been revealed. And we now know the truth. The truth (laughs) is they are going to have to struggle to regain their yeah. seats, at which point they will be completely marginalized if they get there uh, and disenfranchised MPs with no real political power whatsoever. Ha ha. It's all there before us. Uh, <laughs> dear God. I'm so happy that Sheila Copps came out of the woodwork for this because, I mean, I missed her politically. <laughs> I, yeah. I, I missed a, a cranky old lady <laughs> yeah. uh, cranking on about politics for the Trudeau brand. We really needed that in the last six months. You missed like just a complete partisan hack doing the the attack work that uh, the golden boy uh, figurehead can't do. You missed that? Oh, totally. I, I th- This whole affair is very annoying uh, for many reasons, <laughs> but perhaps the most annoying are the folk to me uh, are the folks who see this as being like a new political awakening, a movement of independent, independently minded, independent thinking, in this case, women taking back power to as you say, in six months, be completely marginalized and probably probably lose an election. <laughs> like if they win, they're marginalized. Like, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, what do they have? They'll have kind of a bully pulpit. They'll have the moral high ground. They will get a lot of press attention. They're, they're absolutely compelling figures. I think they'll have a really good position to be kind of like official critics if they win, which mm-hmm. the whole system is stacked against them even winning their seats back. The idea that this was some sort of like scheme on their part is ludicrous. Like, you know, the, the amount of things that are going to have to go right for them to even, you know, get back into parliament, at which point, like what people are still on on some bullshit around like, no, no, no. Then they're going to. Then they're going to wait for Sheer to be elected. Then they're going to come back and, you know, try to be the leader of the Liberal Party. Then, like, maybe, I mean, I'm not saying that that's impossible. That would maybe even be kind of cool. But the idea that that's something that they could kind of, like, plot from the position when they were, like, Mm -hmm. they were ministers in cabinet. Like, the Occam's razor of this is, is just sort of, like, so disbelieved. You know, the possibility that maybe they actually were principled. That maybe they actually had a problem with what the prime minister's office was doing and, and that undue pressure is just so unfathomable that we will conjure up like any kind of other explanation for this. Yeah, I, I fully agree, actually. And it's very telling that a lot of these lines are they're coming from the liberal 
headquarters. Clearly, the liberals need these two women to be to be marginalized. They need them to lose. They're going to split the vote in both of their ridings, and it will likely mean the conservatives win in both ridings. Certainly, the NDP and the Greens have no chance in Markham Stouffville in the riding of uh, of Jane Philpot, mm-hmm. and the NDP has you know less of a chance uh, in uh, in Vancouver Granville, and so these two women stand as a symbol for the rot and the corruption in the Liberal Party. Whether or not everything they've said is true and whether or not you want to believe one side or the other, it's very clear that there is something that's happening in the Liberal Party that is egregious enough to these two people and others, right? There's other folks that have also left the party and are now independent, that they put everything on the line and now have decided to make their lives much harder, right? To to win as an independent is extremely hard in this country. Everything that they've said as their truth has been confirmed by evidence that's come out afterwards. We have no reason to disbelieve anything that they've said. Like they've been vindicated and validated by, every, like, you know, in the face of denials and the Globe and Mail story being shot down. And, you know, no, it actually bared out. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The, the real question for me is, is why are they running as independents and why didn't they, why didn't they jump into another party? The most compelling arguments against that is one, because they want to stay liberals eventually and go back into the liberal party, which is possible. Like, you know, it is possible that that their beef is actually with uh, Trudeau and Fortress Trudeau and a new leader might open up space for them. And it would be very difficult to come back. The second possibility is it's just a question of politics and getting elected and, and neither of them probably would get elected uh, under a different banner. But in the political system, if you're very frustrated with one political party, Deciding to try and, uh, you know, change the world or change the party or change politics by being an independent is a really, really difficult thing to do. And between now and the election, I mean, they've, they've got to fundraise, they've got to get their teams together, they'll have offices opening, and then they're going to run as an independent. And there's been a lot of examples of popular independents that have run in the past and lost. And I would hate to see this whole thing happen for nothing for them really to be completely marginalized in this in the whole story of Trudeau's reign and God help them if Sheer does win and it's very close because the liberal machine will just rain down terror upon them for for splitting the vote in these ridings. Well, yeah, I mean, the idea of them returning, especially if Sheer wins, like the liberal party, like, you know, that squad runs deep and like now they're like, they're not looking to reform the Liberal Party. Like, you know, Trudeau's looking weak, so they're like, you know, Chantal Lebert was just reporting that uh, they're looking at Mark Carney to come take over. They're, they're looking for company men, you know? The idea that this is going to lead to some radical reformation of the Liberal Party, I mean, like, I don't know, maybe if sheer storms to victory and they've got to really th- rethink the whole damn thing. I don't think they could have gone green because of the Green Party's stand towards Indigenous issues, and uh, that would be impossible, I think, for Phil Pot and Jody Wilson-Raybould. Help me with this. Your favorite political show and mine, Oppo, is going to be interviewing Jody Wilson-Raybould and Jane Philpott. And I, you know, you know, Justin Ling and Jen Gerson, they're always incredibly open to input. (laughs) Well, here, they should stop the show. I basically write their (laughs) questions for them. What do you want to know from Raybould and Philpott? What should we ask them? Honest, I'm not that interested in their, their perspectives, to be honest. Like, I have not much patience for the liberal party and so people who have been sucked up chewed up and spit out by the liberal party like i'm for me it's like well yeah obviously that's the liberal party (laughs) like what did you expect i guess i want to know if sheer wins was it worth it and also like this was between phil pot and jody wilson raybould this was the most inside institutional power that indigenous people and indigenous issues had i think in canadian history uh, right? Kind like, of. I mean, let's not get too... Two people for, who I think were serious. Like, keep in mind that Jody Wilson-Raybould's appointment was historic. And when she was in that position, she had her hands handcuffed. And so, like, did she actually have power? Was she more a token? Was she more the justification to not actually do anything because they could point to an attorney general who's indigenous and say, look, we've done our job? 
I mean, this is the core of the problem of the of the Liberal Party, that they're they're master tokenizers and they're masters at just putting people up as props and doing not a whole lot behind it. And so, I mean, I'm not surprised that she left. Certainly, if she left because she was unhappy and Philpott as well, if they left because they were unhappy with how Trudeau and how, you know, Carolyn Bennett and how uh, Indigenous affairs was being run and Indigenous issues in general were being run. But again, like, it seems pretty obvious to me, like, I, aside from hearing what their inner thoughts were about this process and how, how much turmoil they might have gone through and all this kind of stuff. I mean, that's interesting, but I'm, I'm personally not that interested in this story. The story for me really is the lie of the Liberal Party of Canada And how they use that lie to go from being decimated in 2011 to being government in 2015. I think that that is the most interesting thing. And how many people got caught up believing in the lie to only now find out that the feminist Trudeau is not a feminist or the reconciliation government is not a reconciliation government or that all of these promises, every, everything from electoral reform to, to really fundamentally changing things for, for parents in this country. Like nothing has really borne out. It's all been very small changes. And what's that going to do in the fall? I mean, you can blame Jody Wilson-Raybould on getting Sheer elected, but I think the biggest blame is going to be squarely on the on the shoulders of the PMO. I mean, that's not a story. That's a tragedy. That's just, a, you know. <laughs> Tragedies that's just are a, stories, too. <laughs> I guess they're stories, too. It's just, I mean, that's just a, like a, a dirge. That's just like a, uh, Yeah. I mean, you know, I find them fascinating figures, and I find these issues fascinating. The, you know, the question that we're asking here, is it better? Yes, they were obviously, especially Jody Wilson-Raybould was put in as a token, but she won't be tokenized. Was the power that she wielded as attorney general, was that a better position? Like, now it's just like yelling from outside the gates again. You know, it, it is, but it's just a different kind of power. Right. And this is why I'm not totally sure I understand the, the strategy to go independent other than to be able to save face, try to get reelected and then regroup after if it doesn't happen. I mean, I'm as a person who doesn't really care about partisan politics in terms of their ability to change things. I work outside of the system and outside of structures, knowing that any political promise that comes from a partisan mouth is going to be rapidly undone and perhaps even made worse by the next partisan mouth. And so if we're really talking about changing things in this country, like we need to get out of this logic of Trudeau is better than Sheer, Singh is better than Trudeau. We need to go from here to there to that to make sure that we can maintain what we have. It's like, no, no, no. The only way that we maintain anything, whether Andrew Shear's in power or Trudeau's in power or Singh's in power, is actually through creating social consensus and social license to protect and defend and, and make gains in government. And so, you know, if, if Philpott and Wilson Raybould want to be the heads of a new movement of something, well, I mean, that, that doesn't start at the ballot box. I mean, it actually ends at the ballot box. It has to start in the, in the streets and it has to start in, in community organizing. And maybe that's the question that, um, your hosts, if they could formulate the questions like this, uh, <laughs> they could pose those questions to them. You heard it here, people. Democracy just doesn't work. <laughs> this episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, it's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody, half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. But often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does 
BetterHelp. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. Trust is important. There are a lot of mattress lies out there, a lot of mattress liars. And I, I, I didn't intend the pun, but it occurred to me that there is one as I was saying those words. Listen, I am not lying to you. Uh, I have uh, experienced the Douglas mattress. It is an exceptional mattress at a surprisingly affordable price point. It is a mattress that sleeps cool. doesn't have that weird thing in the summer where the mattress gets like an oven. It's a very good product. It's delivered to your house in a box. You don't have to go to a big mattress store. It is a medium firm mattress, which is what Canadians prefer, and it comes with a 365-night trial and a 20-year warranty. What more can I tell you? Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. Okay, duly noted. I'm going to go first. I have noticed that a lot of people on the conservative internet, Canadian conservative Twitter, are losing their minds over this clip of Minister Catherine McKenna getting screeched in. As a Newfoundland expert, I can tell you that getting screeched in is the ceremony where you kiss the cod whilst in Newfoundland in a bar, usually with some drinks, and then you're like a, you're like a Newfoundlander after that. So this is Catherine McKenna in the company of alleged comedian Mark Critch getting screeched in, and then she said this. So what's the discussion now, boys? What we were talking about is St. John's, the oldest city in North America. And uh, there's some debate about that. He was saying that it could be uh, Missouri, but we firmly believe it is because there's nobody from Missouri here. But you know, I actually gave him some real advice. I said that if you actually say it louder, we've learned in the House of Commons, if you repeat it, if you say it louder, if that is your talking point, people will totally believe it. So just go in. Did you catch that? I did. So what we got there is a jovial, lighthearted moment where uh, alleged comedian Critch is talking about uh, whether or not St. John's is the oldest city in North America. And Catherine McKenna, you know, it's a bar. Either she's had a drink or two or she's acting like a fun person who's had a drink or two. And she's saying, oh, just argue that it's the oldest city in North America anyhow is the context. If you And here's the direct quote. If you actually say it louder, we've learned in the House of Commons that if you say something louder, if you repeat it, if that's your talking point, People will totally believe it. Conservatives have clipped that part of it. And here we have, sure, maybe she's got a jovial joking manner, but here we have a liberal minister admitting, admitting to just forcing a talking point, repeating it again and again until it becomes truth. And, and what more proof do you need that these people just make shit up? And that's how that's being shared. What do you think? My eyes just rolled out of my head and they're on the floor. I mean, the problem with coming on your show is you make me defend stuff that I hate defending, right? I ah, Defend Catherine McKenna for me, please. I, I am not a fan of Catherine McKenna. I find everything about her to be rage-inducing. Everything. I, hearing her talk makes me want to punch a wall. Mm-hmm. However. However. She has a right to have fun. She has a right to go to a bar. She has a right to make out with fish if she wants to do that. And she's making a joke very clearly. And I, I think, you know, let's not pretend that anyone who's making an issue out of this 
truly believes that she has revealed the secret of the Liberal Party. The conservatives do this more than anyone else. They stick to a talking point. They don't go off of their lines. And then they try to make things that are not true to become true. And I think it's really annoying, to say the least, and really dangerous, to say the worst, that politicians, and especially women politicians, are not allowed to be human. Now, she has been inundated with abuse, very sexist abuse, since this clip went viral. Uh, of course, that is inexcusable. But I ask you this, Nora, if during the Harper years, some conservative minister was caught on tape saying, like, that's what we do. We just say things until people believe them. Would you take that as a joke? Yeah, I think obviously, because it. she didn't say that's what we do. She said that's how it's done, right? She says, we've learned in the House of Commons. If you repeat it, if you say it louder, people will totally believe it. Yeah, I, I hear that actually her making a dig at the conservatives, to be honest. So I like am. F- really? Well, yeah, we've learned in the House of Commons that you say something long enough and it becomes the truth. Like, my God, look at look at how many things that Sheer has put forward as trying to become truth is be- is now the truth. Like McKenna is how did in you get the- there? At best, she's implicating all politicians. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Sure, sure, okay. sure, sure, sure. I'm not saying that she's not implicating the liberals. But I mean, yeah, we live in a world where like gotcha moments are what people live off of and it becomes weaponized by the right. And yeah. and because Rebecca McKenna has been so viciously attacked from day one, right, it, this is not a new thing, that she really doesn't have the freedom to say anything. And so, I mean, is she allowed to make jokes and get drunk and say ridiculous things? Like, yeah, my God, please. Actually, I wish that politicians did that more and more and more because the power that the mob holds over people like her and people like me uh, to really cause damage when someone says something that's out of line. That power exists because we expect a certain level of decorum from people. And then the rage machine happens when they step out of line. I mean, like, as I said, I don't want to hang out with her. I don't want to I don't want to be in a bar with her. I don't want to hear her talk too, too much. But this is a non-issue. I agree. (laughs) Duly noted. What do you got? So I have something that happened this last weekend, and it's a bit of a coincidence that I believe the last time that you and I spoke, we actually talked about this issue. So over the weekend, the Twitter account for the television show in Quebec, Tout le monde en parle, was suspended. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And it was suspended because a lot, a lot, a lot of right-wing trolls reported it for promoting terrorism. Because they had Omar Khadr on. Because they had Omar Khadr on. And so the specific tweet that they targeted was for that episode, right? Yeah. And they succeeded in pushing the Twitter account off. Is it back? Yeah. So it was down for a little bit. It looked like it went down in mid-Friday night and then was back up by Saturday afternoon. And Twitter admitted that there was, uh, that someone had made an error. But the far right celebrated that they were able to knock this account offline. And as you can imagine, like this is a television show advertising a segment. Like it was not promoting anything other than go watch our show and so i mean the implications of this i just think are really really bad for everyone who's online yeah i think it's uh it's interesting especially like you know these companies like like does twitter have the context for like politics in french canada and culture in french canada like trolls figure out if you brute force flag an account as abusive and some of these abuse controls are there to protect people i don't know like Catherine mckenna you know yeah as uh you know hateful abuse comes in but you try to automate these things and you know it's a cat and mouse game and the trolls figure out well if a hundred of us uh, say this is hate speech or this is uh you know a terrorist sympathizing then we can knock them off maybe for a day or two but like it might be a consequential day or two, you know, suppressing somebody's voice for a day or two can really matter. Duly noted. I have one other thing to bring up. Yes. And to note. 
Dooley. Oh. It's kind of an interesting thing happening simultaneously as Facebook is, uh, I think, historically non-cooperative with this process that's playing out in Ottawa, where not just Canada, but like a number of other countries, like this is the, the world's big effort to figure out the regulatory scheme for privacy. It's occurring in Ottawa right now. They subpoenaed uh, Mark Zuckerberg or Sheryl Sandberg. Neither of them showed up or even told Ottawa that they would not be showing up. And so now, like, they got to figure out, are we going to hold them in, in contempt of, of parliament? Are they going to be, like, arrested next time they show up? Like, <laughs> so that's playing out right now. They're just being, like, you know, uniquely non-cooperative in this very serious issue as to what's happening. You know, this is all about the Cambridge Analytica thing and, and, our, and our privacy and whether or not they're just going to be a completely poisonous and malicious force in our democracy. Meanwhile, meanwhile, they have thrown a little bit of money at the problem of decimating, you know, accurate news. I mean, whilst they are, you know, being rightly held to account for spreading all kinds of fake news, the effects they've had on the news industry and destroying legitimate news is being placated by this. They got $300 million worldwide, they announced, towards um, a local news accelerator. So this was announced some time ago. And then... The Canadian side of that was two and a half million dollars was going to go to a number of uh, local news sources in Canada where Facebook, you know, we taketh, we giveth two and a half million dollars for 11 participants. Mm. And it's interesting in a couple of ways. If you look at the list of the beneficiaries of this, yes, you've got, you know, the Tai and the discourse and, you know, scrappy independent, the Vancouver Observer online news, companies that I think are trying to legitimately rebuild some kind of news industry where reporting gets done and it can be sustained online. But you also have a post-media newspaper getting Facebook money, the London Free Press. You have Brunswick News, which is owned by the billionaire Irving family, getting money from this local news accelerator. And then I've learned that like there was no open application process. Uh, Blog.to tells me that when this was announced in February, they called Facebook, they contacted Facebook and said, how do we apply? And Facebook basically brushed them off. And so now we're like, what what is the future of news going to be? Like, we're just like going to be trying to get on the inside track somehow with a completely non-transparent process, be it getting money from government, which we'll talk about in a minute, or from... You know, the big tech giants, when they feel like throwing a few crumbs our way, like this is pretty fucked up. It's really fucked up. And I mean, first of all, my local paper's there, which is kind of interesting. Le Soleil, it's the only francophone uh, newspaper in the lot. And of course, Le Soleil is not an independent newspaper either. One of the things that I feel like Canadians have to really start uh, demanding to know from government is why government refuses to do anything in relation to Facebook. I mean, they're not paying taxes. Their entire model relies on that content produced by news sources, by traditional news sources. Like our, our news feeds are all stories, right? From yeah. your local news or from national news or whatever. And the local news, the national news, they get nothing to produce this. Facebook makes all the money. And the only reason why they have our eyeballs there to see whatever ad that they're profiting off of is because of our news feeds acting more often than not like a, a news aggregator. So, I mean... Yeah, Facebook having too much power and deciding where money is going to go and to which newspapers it's going to support is all kinds of bad. And I think that, you know, it's just another signpost on the road towards Facebook as a, as a global um, tyrant. <laughs> <laughs> Something I'm, I'm concerned about, and we don't apply for these monies for obvious reasons, like we cover Facebook, we can't, there's a conflict there. You know, we, we, we can't apply for government bailout money because we cover the government. Like, I feel like that's just a, a no-go zone. I don't fault 
another startup that just needs to get funding for filling out a forum and trying to get, you know, a few hundred thousand dollars. That's a huge amount of money for some of these other digital news startups. I just want to strike a note of caution because I think in Canada, when people have the motivation to start something, we do not have an entrepreneurial culture. And I think that like the next question is, who's going to give me money? What form can I fill out? What grant can I get? And you can, you can find yourself on a treadmill of jumping from benefactor to benefactor. And it's, you know, you could be putting that effort into actually building a business and connecting with an audience and getting some kind of a revenue model together. But instead, I worry that some of these organizations are just going to be going from subsidy to handout to subsidy to handout. And Ultimately, that does affect the product because then your focus is there. It's not on building that audience and telling those stories and breaking stories. And, and you know, like I just want to get on with the business of rebuilding a new news industry. And I, I fear that some of these efforts, which are really just about Facebook PR in this case, like they're not really trying to rebuild local news and, and like they're not making a serious investment in rebuilding that economy. It actually could do more harm than good. Duly noted. Nora, as you know, I have been very, very uh, curmudgeonly and sour about the media bailout from the start. My feeling was that it uh, purported to be about sustaining and saving journalism, but was actually just a make work program to bail out the newspapers. And I've been proven right again and again. I mean, I just I, I don't want to be proven right by this, but I've been proven right in the way that they're actually applying this. And the issue is not just who's going to get the money, new journalists or old journalists. The issue is also that when you start to determine who's a qualified journalist and who gets the money, partisan issues come into play as well. It's just something the government shouldn't have anything to do with. In my opinion, the partisan issue is probably of much more widespread concern than the new media versus old media part of this. So is this going to go to Justin Trudeau affiliated journalists? And this is just a payout, a blackmail attempt to get journalists on side. Or is this going to be independently handed out to journalists who actually are the real journalists and, and who's going to determine who those real journalists are? And how is that process going to be nonpartisan? Well, here's how we have made it nonpartisan. The panelists have been announced, or at least the panelists will determine the panelists. And one of the eight parties at the table is Unifor, the largest union in Canada, representing a lot of newspaper workers. Unifor, who have openly campaigned against Andrew Scheer. Here is what happened when Heritage Minister Pablo Rodriguez defended that choice on CBC's As It Happens. And you don't think that there is a bias here or a perception of bias if you have as one of your panel members, and I, so I know I'm asking you this once again, but I apologize for that, but I still haven't got a clear answer. Do you not think but that I there's a problem of bias? I did answer. You don't think that there's any bias in the part of Unifor? No, that, Unifor doesn't have a political agenda. No, you're saying that all that, these Does Unifor have a political agenda, sir? the journalists they represent have... And, 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 uh, no, their own no, agenda. no, I'm not saying that. Yes, I'm saying, the, saying that. I'm sorry, sir, I'm not. The panel you put together has Unifor as one of its and one of its members. And the question is that an organization that is clearly partisan and anti-conservative and have made that very clear. We're asking if that's an appropriate per party to have on this panel. We're saying that we need people from all walks of life. In this case, that people that represent the workers, the employers, the regions. The, the official languages and all of that to be represented there to make sure that this panel represents all of them and that it takes neutral uh, decisions on professional journalism because we need professional journalism in our, in, in our society. You're there to ask the tough questions. It's, again, this is exactly what you're doing and this is what we need. So there you have it. The issue at stake here is the fact that Unifor has taken a very firm stand against Andrew Scheer. This is uh, the biggest union in Canada, and they represent a lot of newspaper workers. And they 
have uh, campaigned against Shear. They put out a message calling Unifor itself the resistance against Andrew Shear. They do not want Andrew Shear to be the next prime minister. And the conflict of interest, if you believe there is one, is that they are now going to have a say in who gets money, who is recognized as a qualified journalist and who is paid to survive, who is given a lifeline from government to create journalism, a organization that does not want the conservatives to be in power. Nora, you and I had words about this after Unifor's uh, head, Jerry Diaz, wrote a piece in the Toronto Sun of all places, blasting Andrew Scheer, saying like, what's the problem with me being on this panel? What's the problem? I take it you agree there's no problem with Unifor being on this panel? Oh, my God. I mean, this is I'm really excited for this conversation, Jesse. I'm glad that you're excited. (laughs) Okay, first of all, Unifor is not the largest national union. That's the Canadian Union of Public Employees, QP. So they are they're large. They're the second largest. Listening to that interview with Carol off, I mean, she is so exposing what she thinks of Unifor in that interview. It makes me so enraged. And I think that what is fascinating is you can say that there might be political disagreement happening between her and, and, and Pablo Rodriguez, but I actually think it's a cultural disagreement that's more about English Canada and French Canada. What? Okay. Because in, what? Beca- yeah, because in French Canada, the unions are literally seen as the groups that represent the workers. And of course, unions have political positions that they take at the leadership level. And of course, unions are there to defend good working positions or whatever. They're much more a part of the bureaucracy of labor relations in Quebec. Whereas in Canada, a lot of people fall into the into the mentality, and there's there's structural reasons for this, of seeing unions as pressure groups, as interest groups, as groups that only have a political agenda to change partisan politics. And we forget that actually unions, and Unifor is a good example of this, Unifor represents 11,000 media workers in Canada, though the largest union of media workers in Canada, and they have a legal duty to represent those workers. And so, as Pablo Rodriguez was saying, why wouldn't they be there? Carol could have just as easily made that whole interview about how completely ridiculous it is that the employers group is on this panel. The employers group who has consistently taken position after position across their editorial boards to support Andrew Scheer. What is the difference between those two things? But they're on the same side. The publishers group, News Media Canada, which represents the publishers of newspapers and the union, which represents newspaper workers, they want the same thing. Money for the newspapers. And because there's only so much money, not money for non-newspaper media workers. They're on the same team. If the problem is their position related to the conservatives, right? We can, we can talk about the media bailout because my, my perspective on the media bailout is much more similar to yours. But on this issue specifically. No, let's talk about this conflict of interest because I'm actually, I'm so curious as to like, how you could not see what a huge problem this is. I don't want to argue as much as I want to understand where you're coming from. Like, do you understand the problem that people would have with this? Like, when conservatives you people, exist. You mean, conservatives. you mean some journalists, I assume. No, 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 no. Conservatives, news readers. Okay, this is, this is not a media bailout. Like, uh, the plan here is to try to help journalism and what helps journalism. Yes, keeping it alive helps journalism, but also people need to be able to trust their journalism. So, I want to ask you to look at this from someone else's perspective. Conservatives exist. I want you to imagine that you are Nora the conservative, okay? Great. You get your news from newspapers. You get your news from CBC Online and radio. You read things from all across the spectrum, but you orient as a conservative. And you're just trying to be an informed person, but you know the facts. You know that the fact is, if Andrew Scheer is elected, 
he has taken a position that he's against the media bailout. So this reporter who's giving you a story about what Andrew Scheer did today could lose their job if Andrew Scheer is elected. And Andrew Scheer has also said that he's going to ax the CBC's news department. So you know the fact is that the CBC journalist who's giving you information has a vested interest in Andrew Scheer not winning. And it doesn't matter at this point if you're reading a conservative newspaper from Post Media, because they're represented by Unifor, or if you're, you know, listening to the CBC or, or, or whatever else, if that journalist is going to stand to benefit from the subsidy or from public funds of any kind, that journalist at least has an interest in Andrew Scheer not being prime minister. That person is simply right to reason. What are we saying to that newsreader? Oh, you can still trust the news 100%. Like they're just making a reasonable calculation that there is a conflict of interest, whether or not the journalist has been swayed by this conflict, has been polluted by this conflict, and it's it's making them biased. They absolutely have an interest in Andrew Scheer not being elected. And that is why the involvement of Unifor, which is not just taking a position on policy, which unions have to do. Of course, the union is going to be for the media bailout, but they've taken a position on who should be prime minister. We are the resistance against Andrew Scheer. So there are journalists saying, shut the fuck up. You represent me as a unionized journalist. You you represent me and you're campaigning against Andrew Scheer. You're fucking with my credibility. You're politicizing journalism in Canada, which is just what this entire bailout is doing and what the inclusion of Unifor has just sort of like rocket fueled. I mean, <laughs> so that newsreader is going to be pushed away. They cannot trust their news anymore. And then that delivers them into the hands of like, well, who is an independent journalist who's not on the government dole? I guess it's Ezra Levant. I guess I got to get my news from the rebel. You, I mean, you do, are confusing so many issues right now. So you are you are effectively towing the propaganda line of the conservatives right now. Let me try to distangle some of this stuff. So you've got your average conservative reading the Toronto Sun. The Toronto Sun is a, a newspaper that the journalists are members of Unifor and that the ownership is in bed with the conservatives. Okay, so we already have a credibility problem. The journalists who work at the Toronto Sun, whose journalism is tainted by the political positions that are taken by their bosses, that creates already a difficult journalism world, right? That's the world that we live in. The CBC, if someone is going to lose their job as a result of Andrew Scheer getting elected, if that compromised journalism at the CBC, that would be a problem. These are different issues than asking, okay, we have a panel of eight people. They must represent the news industry, right? We have to agree with this. No, no, no. They don't have to represent the news industry. That, who if they would make a decision industry, about the future of the news industry if it's not going to be people who represent the news industry? Who is better to build the next chapter of new digital media than the old legacy print media? That doesn't make any sense. Sorry, then who? No, I'm asking who who is not on that list of people that you think would make this whole thing different and better? Oh, there's no representation for digital media in there. This thing isn't about digital media. So who? This thing is about the future of media, which everyone acknowledges the newspapers and the government as well is digital. Yeah, but you're buying the spin again. Okay, so again, there's two separate issues here. If we want to talk about the bailout itself... I agree with you. It is totally problematic. It, as I know, Jesse, you listen to my podcast all the time, and you know that we talk about liberal schemes all the time, that the liberals are masters at making complicated and bad schemes to try and save or promote or do something. And they always They're, they're caulking this up badly, but I, I'm, I'm still at the level of comprehension here because I, I have to stop you. So we're not arguing. We're just trying to see if we understand each other. You said earlier, it's only a problem if it pollutes the journalism. You understand that the appearance of a conflict of interest, if you know that the journalist has their 
their job on the line as to which party uh, gets elected or not is the appearance of a conflict of interest. Whether or not that actually affects their journalism is sort of a secondary concern. You've already created a crisis of credibility where there is a appearance of conflict, which is tantamount to a conflict of interest. But you are creating that right now. You are anybody listening to us right now might believe what you're saying is true. So I just spent the last weekend at the Uniform Media Council at the at the decision making body kind of of the group of people who are members of Unifor in media. And there is no doubt in the minds of the journalists who are present that their job is to absolutely not toe a political line, toe a party line, be polluted by any of the stuff that they are a part of, like a side of all of this. And if we don't talk about the fact that journalists who are like talented, good journalists, regardless of the political forces of their bosses, of the political forces of people who are elected, of the forces of their own unions, good journalists produce good journalism still. And it's up to you and I and everyone who knows that that's the truth to be out there saying, no, 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 regardless, regardless of the of the liberals decision to bail out news of post media's decision to endorse the conservatives every single election of Unifor's decision to say, yes, we want this money to save our industry. Regardless of all of that, your news, dear Canadian, is fair, accurate and unbiased to the extent that we can make that so because we believe in real journalism. But when we <laughs> continuously toe the line of the conservatives saying, well, you know, it looks really bad if it looks really bad. And we've got Andrew Shear saying he's going to cut the CBC. Literally, by your logic, there isn't a single CBC journalist who should be able to hold their head up high right now. That is so insulting of the public that our job <laughs> is merely to browbeat them that we are above reproach. We're no, not. No, it's not. I'm not saying that. Not. It's a public education that, that thing. We are, look, look. It's <laughs> the proof is right there. Like Jerry Diaz is writing editorials in the Toronto Sun. Okay. The head of Unifor is writing an editorial in the Sun saying, why are we on this panel? To make sure that basement dwelling news bloggers don't get the money and real journalists do. And we're supposed to, the public is supposed to just be like, oh yeah, the Sun loves printing the head of the union. And it's got nothing to do with the fact that the Sun is represented by this guy's union. So yes, I agree with you. Pretty much every- Sorry, does the union make the decision about who gets like space in the editorial pages or the opinion pages? No, the, the Toronto Sun does. The Toronto Sun is influenced by its economic interests. So you're saying that we should be educating the public that reporters are true and good and care about their jobs and have integrity. Hey, most reporters I know are, mm -hmm. but the public is not stupid. They know the decisions about, and they take their paper holistically. We're so narrow, laser focused on, I'm a reporter, I do these news reports. The paper is a collection of headlines and images and who gets space and what's covered, things that the reporter doesn't doesn't really have a say on. And those things are always being skewed by the interests of the publisher. So you want to say to the public, trust your friendly neighborhood journalist. They're above reproach. It doesn't matter who's paying their bill. They're going to give you the goods. People aren't dumb. They've seen the Toronto Star and Post Media, Paul Godfrey and John Hunrick have something in common. They want money and they've been using their newspapers to lobby for it. They're completely compromised in this, and it's not wrong for the public to turn away in disgust. The problem with that is we're destroying people's credibility in the even the possibility that there's a rational source of legitimate information. We're destroying credibility in news writ large, and we're sending people off to those same basement-dwelling news bloggers, some of whom actually are radical, dangerous people who we don't want people to be turning to. So like, this is having the opposite effect of what's intended. It's destroying the news that it you know, supposedly is trying to say, but we know that this is just about propping up the newspapers and not about saving journalism, don't we? Yeah. So I agree with you. And in that little rant, you are totally... That was a big rant. Okay. No, I know. I know. But I mean, like in the sp space of time, right? It was a couple of seconds or maybe a minute and a half. No, it felt you, long. <laughs> you identify correctly that the blame lies 
on the publishers for the situation we find ourselves in today. And I yeah, think so. Let's I, give them money. Yeah, it's so important to say that it's the publishers, and the publishers keep making bad political decisions about who to support partisanly or what to cut or where to invest or whatever. And so, in that world, that's the boss's fault. And a lot of that fault lies on their pursuit of profits. And in their pursuit of profits, news consistently gets shedded or ignored or disparaged or, or torqued or whatever. And that is how we see the rise of fake news. And in that ecosystem, to see the union, Unifor or the Guild or whatever, as being implicated in that rather than one of the sole ways that we actually can confront that power is really bizarre. Because they don't. No pro- the union, the union should. If the union is offered a seat at that table, they should take it. They should protect those jobs with everything that they've got. That's what a union is for. They shouldn't be allowed near this process. I can't even with you. <laughs> Nora, thank you. Come on. <laughs> That's your Canada Land shortcuts. You can email me about it. I'm at Jesse at CanadaLandShow.com. I read everything you send me. We are on Twitter at CanadaLand. Nora, where can people find you? You can find me at sandyandnora.com or at uh, nolore, N-O-L-O-R-E, at Twitter. And I write for the National Observer and the Washington Post. Our website is canadalandshow.com. There's an episode of Crude, Commons new season Crude. You know, Lac Magantic, like, that was not long ago that an entire town was annihilated. Have we found justice on that issue? Could it happen again tomorrow? This story, we moved too quickly away from big stories that happened in Canada. This week on Crude, that story is retold and it is chilling and it is concerning and it's really interesting. Check that out. This episode is produced by David Crosby. Our managing editor is Kevin Sexton. Syndication is by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at cfuv.ca. If you like what we do, if you would like to receive ad-free versions of our podcasts, you can help us. We need your help. Go to patreon.com slash CanadaLand. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.